0: Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. should you destroy yourself. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, all things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to the know, know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand what is admittedly a difficult text. You'd help us to get to the heart of what it is that you're saying, to love your truth, to really um, help us deal with an issue that I think... Strike so many of us so often through life of just why, why so many bad things happen to relatively good people while, while wicked men prosper. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand the preacher's perspective on this, that you superintended by your Holy Spirit, that we would understand what he is saying, that we would walk in wisdom in light of it, that you would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you all know the story um, of life that I'm sure you have seen, just like the preacher starts out this text when he says, he makes the comment, in my vain life, which he means there, my short life. Um, He doesn't mean completely meaningless life. He means by vanity, which I've said before, it's like a breath on a cold morning. You just see the little mist and it's gone and it's it's there for a minute and it's gone. It's like a vapor. It's very short, lacks substance. In my vain life... I have seen everything. He doesn't mean he's seen everything that could possibly ever happen. What he means is that he's basically seen the full story. He's looked around and he's seen all kinds of things that most of us have likely seen. For example, the big issue he's going to deal with here that he has seen, the thing he has seen is what many of us have, which is you have things happening like a young child who seems to be an innocent young child gets cancer and suffers horribly and dies. Meanwhile, some wicked man lives prosperously a long life. Or you see a young dad. Thanks, Randy. You see a young dad or a young mom who are living a relatively good life and they You know, who seem to be relatively good people, why did this thing happen to them? Why did they die of cancer? Or you see someone who loses everything financially, an honest businessman who's working hard at his trade and he uses everything financially, and meanwhile, while he's out losing everything financially, some wicked businessman who's cheating and lying is prospering. And you think to yourself, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever asked that question? How come bad things happen to good people? It's a pretty famous question. I'm not sure if you've asked it yourself. Probably most of you have. And when I say, why do bad things happen to good people, what we mean here by this question is relatively good people. Why do bad things happen to relatively good people? Nobody's good in the ultimate sense of the word, but why do bad things happen to relatively good people? God promises again and again that he will do good to those who are righteous. Do you guys know that? If you read through the Old Testament, you will find promise after promise after promise where God is saying, I will do good to those who are righteous. For example, take uh, the fifth commandment. Are you familiar with that? Honor your father and mother. And what happens That command comes with a promise, doesn't it? And you will live long in the land. It will go well with you, and you will live long in the land. And the Jews of this day were looking at life around them and saying, some of us are honoring our father and mother, and we're dying young. We're not living long in the land. And meanwhile, our enemies, those who are wicked, those who don't honor their father and mother, they're living long in the land, and they're prospering. And they're wondering, why is, it, why is it that this seems to be the case when it seems clearly that you say in multiple places you're going to prosper the righteous? Why do we see relatively good people suffering and dying young and we see a man like Hugh Hefner who seems to live a prosperous life to a ripe old age? And that's a question the preacher deals with in verse 15. Look what he says. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. In other words, the good die young. He perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evildoing. See, the preachers just talked about handling adversity. If you were here last week, remember the passage from 6.10 to 7.14, he's talking about how do we handle adversity? And why is it there? And basically it's there because God has placed it there. And he's really going further than that. He's saying, well, then why? Why is it that sometimes righteous men are suffering adversity, meanwhile wicked men are prospering? Why? Jesus says something similar, doesn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, he makes the statement that the Father, God the Father, makes the Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he brings rains on the just and the unjust. In other words, sometimes the good see the sun, sometimes they experience the rain, and sometimes, sometimes the unjust, the evil, right, experience rain. No sun, or they, they see the sun, and sometimes they experience no rain. I mean, they sometimes prosper, sometimes they suffer. Sometimes good people prosper, sometimes they suffer. But why do wicked men ever prosper while some righteous people suffer? That's really the question, isn't it? And it elicits two questions that the preacher actually addresses. The first one is, why does it happen? And the second one is, how do we respond to it? Why does that happen ever, and how do we respond to it? And the first question the preacher actually answers is how we respond to it. So we're going to take that one first. So here's the first question. How do we respond to the fact that it seems like righteous people suffer and wicked people prosper? How do we respond to that? The first answer he gives is don't be overly righteous. You hear that? That might surprise you because Jesus says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Right? And be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yet here, in the text, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, be not, verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Too wise? How can I be too wise? Why should you destroy yourself? Here's what he's getting after. He's not talking about He's not talking about with righteousness here. He's not talking about don't be holy. What he's saying is don't pursue holiness, don't pursue righteousness, as if you think that if you become righteous enough or holy enough, that somehow God God owes you a prosperous life. Do you hear that? That if you just believe enough, do good enough, live well enough, then somehow you have kicked into effect some law by where now God owes you something. You can't merit prosperity from God. You can't. Pursuing righteousness and wisdom is a good thing. Look at, he even addresses the fact that it's a good thing in verse 19. Go down there briefly. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Think rulers who are in a city, they they would rule all of these places. Those rulers would seem to have all kinds of strength if they're brought together. And what he's saying is wisdom gives more strength than that. Wisdom is good. Righteousness is good. What he's essentially saying is, I'm not saying... That pursuing righteousness is bad, or that pursuing wisdom is bad. I'm saying that you should never use the pursuit of righteousness and wisdom as a tool to manipulate God to get the things in your life that you want. You know, so you can get your best life now. Right? The fact is, there really aren't any righteous people. You aware of that? There is no one righteous enough that God owes them anything. You can never believe enough or obey enough for God to ever owe you anything. Look at what it says in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You know, you don't don't want to take... Heart everything that people says, right? say, right? You, you want to make sure, because if you do that, you're going to hear people cursing you, right? If you're just paying attention to everything everyone's saying, it's like he's like, don't do that, because you're going to hear your servant cursing you, and you're going to be reminded, look at the next part, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Right? Look, you're righteous. You want, uh, you're not righteous. You want an example of the fact that you're not righteous? You yourself have cursed other people, haven't you? Who in here has never can honestly say you never gossiped, slandered about another, with regard to another person. Never. Never talked negatively about another person. Never. Nobody can say that. What the preacher says, no one on earth can say, there is no one who's righteous. So to pursue being some kind of super righteous person, like a Pharisee, who you think you check all the right boxes and do all the right things, and so now God owes me something in life. What he's saying is it's a, that's a useless pursuit. It'll never happen. In fact, it seems that Paul, the apostle, actually quotes this passage or is working off of this when he says in verse, in verse 20 where it says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It seems that Paul is picking up on that in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 when the apostle Paul says this, as it is written... No one, none is righteous, no, not one. No one who's righteous. Everyone sins. Everyone. And we are all justly as sinners under the condemnation of God. You hear that? So that I heard um, a man named R.C. Sproul ask the question when someone asked, why do bad things happen to good people, I heard R.C. Sproul say we ought to flip that question on its head and say, why do good things happen to bad people? That's what really should surprise us. What ought to surprise us is that God's declaration about us is that there is no one righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. One. That God could say that about us and then turn around and say to us, but I love you enough that I'm going to pursue you by sending my son to live perfectly where you failed to and then to pay your penalty on the cross and then to resurrect from the grave. Why? Because I want to be good to you. I want to be good to you bad people. That's why Paul can go on in Romans 3.21 and say, but now the righteousness of God there's no one righteous, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here's his point there's no one righteous, but the righteousness of God has come. It's come, but it's not us. It isn't found in what we do, it's come in Jesus. By what kind of law? He goes on and says, The righteous of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means declared righteous, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hear that? We aren't righteous. We don't deserve anything but bad things to happen to us in the ultimate sense. But God... God loved us and sent his son, the righteous one, so that when we believe in him, we believe in him, we're declared righteous. God has done something incredibly good to incredibly sinful people, hasn't he? We can never do anything to merit that. We can't do anything to earn that. That's the preacher's point. You can't do it. And you might acknowledge, I, I, I know I do, I don't know if you guys do this, you might acknowledge that, you know what, I'm, I know I'm not righteous enough and I can never be righteous enough to merit good things, right? You guys acknowledge that, most of you? I know I don't deserve good things to happen to me, you sort of acknowledge that, but, but here's the thing, you know the truth, right, when, because when life goes bad, the truth is really dwelling in your heart, because when life goes bad and you start wondering, how, how could God let this happen to me? And you start even asking God, have you ever caught yourself, well, haven't I served you? I've been, I've done this and I've done, why are you letting this happen? I've done this for you and I've done that and you're, why are you letting this happen to me? You know what that tells you? It tells you somewhere in your heart you believe you've earned better. God owes you something. Somewhere in there you're living by a performance-based standard and you think I've performed well enough to deserve better than this. Or maybe you live under this sense that if I I do this one thing, God may not bless me. He may curse me. If I I do this and don't do this, God may not bless me. He may curse me. As if God is in the heavens, you have this picture of God like he's in in the heavens reaching his hand down to you. He's reaching down to you and he's got it out there as long as you're doing the right thing, but behind his back, he's got his other hand with a hammer in it. And he's just waiting. And as you reach up to take hold of his hand, he's like, that was bad. Bam, 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 right? He's just waiting for that. What kind of sick view of God is that that dwells in our heart? Perhaps you live in the constant fear of losing your salvation. You ever live in that fear? Losing your salvation? Look, you didn't earn it. You can't lose it. Paul goes on and addresses that in Romans 5, 9, and 10. He makes this statement. Since therefore we have now been justified, declared righteous, forgiven by his blood, that's Jesus, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here's his point he's going to argue from the greater to the lesser. If God will kill his son for you while you're his enemy, if he will send his son to die on your behalf while you're his enemy, now that you're his friend, how much more will he save you? You think he's going to do this for you while you're his enemy, and then as soon as you're a friend, he's going to turn his back on you when you sin? Look, Jesus is the only reason that we receive any righteousness from God, and he's the only one who's ever merited anything good from God. That's why it's in Christ that you have all the treasures of God, not apart from him. And you don't realize that all those in this life. You guys know that, right? You might realize some of them in this life. But you're not going to realize all of them. You're going to realize the fullness of it when you're dead or when he returns. So he says, one, don't be overly righteous. Don't pursue righteousness to try to manipulate God. Two, don't be overly wicked. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 of Ecclesiastes 7. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? In other words, here's what he's saying. You, you can't, just because you can't earn Prosperity from God by doing the right thing doesn't mean you ought to run off into wickedness, right? Just because keeping his law and trying to be a good person is not going to earn you long life and good things doesn't mean you should run off into wickedness and destroy yourself. Don't go out and run out into life and live like some idiot who lives recklessly because you'll destroy your life. You'll die before the time, he says, Think about how many um, guys run off into gang activity or drug activity or criminal activity and they die unnecessarily young. That's what he's talking about. They die young because of stupidity that they run off into. Because they run off into sin. And what he's saying is, just because you can't manipulate God into giving you the life you've always wanted doesn't mean you should run off and live recklessly and somehow claim it for yourself. Hear that? Hear that? What, do you, what should you do? Third point he makes. The only right response is to fear God. Look at verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. What is he talking about? Take hold of this, and from that not withhold your hand. He's, by this he means uh, take hold of the fact that you shouldn't try to be overly righteous. You shouldn't try to manipulate God with your righteousness and doing what you want. By that, Not withholding that from your hand means you should remember that that, therefore you you don't run off into wickedness either. Don't do either of those two things. Don't try to manipulate God to get what you want through your professed righteousness and don't run off into wickedness to try to get what you want either. Neither one of those paths lead to anything but destruction. You hear that? Whether you run down the life as a Pharisee, As a person who seeks to please God, as a legalist, a person who seeks to please God through the things that you do. So somehow, if I do the right things, believe the right things, say the right things, God will owe me. And he'll do good things for me. Doing that is just leading down the path of destruction. Because you don't recognize you need grace. It's all the grace that comes to you through Jesus Christ. But... On the flip side, don't go out and be some irreligious person who abandons God and runs after sin thinking that somehow if you do that, then you're going to get what you want because you you might die young from that too. That's a destructive path as well and that brings nothing but the wrath of God. Here's the thing, both of these paths bring the wrath of God, don't they? And neither one of those paths, neither one of those paths guarantee the happiness that you're trying to pursue or the prosperity you're trying to pursue. You have to look to God, and fear him. That's why he says, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Take hold of the fact that you can never be righteous enough that he owes you, but that this does not mean you should go ahead and be wicked. Instead, wisdom dictates you fear God, you look to him, you revere him, you trust in him. You recognize that it's he alone being gracious to you that brings you any hope of prosperity in this life or the next. True, lasting, God-honoring prosperity that's found in Christ. Why is this the state of affairs? So here's how you respond to it. Don't be too righteous, don't be too wicked, and don't, don't, excuse me, and and fear God instead. So don't do either of those things, fear God instead. Right? Don't try to manipulate him through good deeds. Don't try to run after it and grab it yourself through wickedness. Just fear Him. Trust Him. That's how He says you respond to the situation. Great. Thank you very much, preacher of Ecclesiastes, for telling us how we respond to why, how we respond to why good things are um, happening to wicked people and bad things are happening to good people. That's helpful, but you still haven't answered our question. Why does it happen? Why? He goes on and says this. Why does God allow people to suffer adversity while his enemies receive prosperity. And look at how he answers it. He starts answering it in verse 23. And here's the first answer he finds. God's ways are beyond him. Verse 23, he says this. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise. And here he means I want to be super wise. I want to know everything. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep who can find it. In other words, all the things that have happened, why God has done what He's done, is too far off for me. It's too deep for me. It's more than I can understand. It's like he comes to the conclusion, God's ways are beyond me. God didn't consult with me on everything He does. What? What? He doesn't explain everything He does to me. There are things that apparently God does not feel compelled to explain to us. Do you know that? We say, the Bible doesn't answer all my questions. Maybe we ought to consider the fact that we're asking the wrong questions. Maybe we ought to look at the answers God gives us and realize from there those are the questions that he wants us to be asking. Hmm? Isaiah 55, 8-9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So here's what the preacher realizes. First thing he realizes, I search it out, and I realized I'm not God. And it's too big for me to understand. The second thing he found, that the pursuit of sin, he found the pursuit of sin to be enslaving. And you're going to wonder, why does that have any connection to answering the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But I'll tell you in a minute. He found the pursuit of sin to be enslaving. Look at verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. In other words, it's a plan. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Uh, You might know this woman. Uh, This is sin personified, right? This isn't like he's pointing out, oh, Sheila over there in the congregation, you know. She will chase you down, and she will bind you up and ruin you, right? What he's talking about is he's personifying sin, and he personifies it as a female, not because he's saying something about females. That's just the way they conceptually personified things. They generally personified them as females. He personifies her as a female. Specifically, personifies sin as an adulterous woman. This woman who's luring you in and enticing you. Who's saying, look how good I look. Doesn't this look great? And the men are going, yes. And they go, come to my house for dinner. And this is when Proverbs 5, and, by the way. Says, come to my house for dinner. And he comes to the house for dinner. And it ruins his life. It enslaves him. And what he's doing is he's appealing to the hearer and he says, while I might not have an answer that satisfies you, I might not have an answer that satisfies you as to why bad things happen to good people. I do know one thing. Here's what I know. Pursuing sin and folly may seem fun and may seem to pay off in the life of wicked people, but it is ultimately enslaving and its penalty is great. Hear that? So he's saying, I don't know exactly why bad things happen to good people, but here's what I know. Because that's true doesn't mean you ought to run off into wickedness thinking that somehow through sin you're going to find pleasure and you're going to find prosperity because it will enslave you and it will destroy you. Third, not only you find out sin was enslaving and He wasn't God. He found out his constant search was vain. Look at verse 27. Behold, this is what I found. Okay, good. He's going to get to something he found. Says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Here's what I found. I searched and searched and didn't find anything. Look, look. Essentially saying if you're trying to figure out why providentially God does everything he does, stop it. It ain't going to help you. You're going to search in vain. You're never going to find a profitable answer. The preacher stands up and says, "Look, it, I I I have searched out all wisdom and I have looked at the whole scheme of things, and at the end of it all, here's what I have found. I have found that I have not found anything. I don't know." Here's, here, here's the question. You promised to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people and you're 30 minutes in the sermon and you're telling us I don't know is the answer? So does that make the whole sermon vain then? Right? It, here's the thing. Frankly, no, anyone who thinks they can answer these questions, you know the philosophers who pontificate on all, all of these kinds of things and try to come up with an answers, you go read any of their answers. They're, none of them are satisfying because they're going beyond any knowledge, any revelation that God has given us. God has basically said, I'm not going to answer all your questions. I'm not going to tell you why I do everything I do. You just need to know I'm God and you're not. And that's his answer, essentially. I don't know. I've been in these sort of apologetics kind of debates. Do you guys know what I mean by that, apologetics? It's defending the faith where maybe there's been a professor or something I've had to debate in some context. And so I've been in these debates with these guys, and, and they'll say, well, why does evil happen? Why do a, does a child die young? We know that's evil. Why does that happen? And, and there's a lot of arguments I can give him to the answer to that question. But the first question I always ask him is, why do you think it's evil? Right? Obviously, you know that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I agree with you, that's not the way it's supposed to be, which means we both know it's supposed to be some other way. And neither one of us know why it's that way, except there was a fall of man into sin. And other than that, there's not a whole lot of answers we have. I know that men fell into sin, and therefore bad things happen. That's all I can really tell you. And I'm comfortable with that. Comfortable with that. If there is no God, there is no way to judge whether bad things happen anyway. Child dies young, so what? It's a random assortment of, you know, protons, neutrons, and electrons that organize together as a child that's gone. Big deal. Why does anybody care? We care because it's more than just some Random thing, isn't it? We know there's something purposeful there, and we know it's evil. We know it's wrong that that happens. And so we pontificate on this question, and we try to answer it. And you know what God tells us throughout Scripture? My ways aren't your ways, and my thoughts aren't your thoughts. You can't possibly comprehend everything I'm doing. It's vain for you to try to answer it. Fourth, he says he found... very few relatively good men and no truly righteous men look at verse look at the next part of verse 18 there or excuse me not 18 but the next part of verse 28 one man among a thousand i found i went out looking for righteous men to find out why they suffer one man among a thousand i found but a woman woman among all these i have not found you know what? This part about where he says, I found a righteous man among every thousand, but I didn't find any righteous women. I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> I'll just tell you right now. <laughs> I'll just tell you. you. You men can go home and explain it to your wives later. <laughs> Basically, here's the point. Basically, he's saying that we complain about bad things happening to relatively good people. And what he's saying is, why why even really ask that question? Because you really can't even find a righteous person anyway. We get right down to it. There's no one who deserves good to happen to them. Fifth thing he says is that he found that God made things good, and we made a mess of it. In other words, this is the only answer to the question. Look at verse 29. See, this alone I found This alone, here's what he found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. It's talking about the schemes of man. God made man upright in the garden. Satan came to him and said, eat that fruit. You know it's going to be good. And man sought out a scheme. I have a plan different from God's. God's is that I don't eat that fruit, but I have a plan that's different and I'm going to eat it. Man sought out many schemes, after he had been kicked out of the garden, he sets up a competing city against God's in which God destroys with a flood. Man sought, sought out many schemes, like what? After the flood is over, man goes, regathers, and builds the Tower of Babel, which God then has to destroy and scatter him out. See what happens? We have all of our schemes that we pursue, don't we? We think our way is the right way, but what our schemes accomplish is making a mess out of things. That's essentially what he's saying. You know, I don't know ultimately why this person suffered the way they did. I don't know. I just know that God is God and we're not. And I know that none of this is his fault because he made us upright and we made a mess out of it. Hear that? We sought out our schemes. That's all I really know. God's scheme is what matters. Hear that? We will never understand all that happens here. I'm just gonna tell you that right now. You come into me for counseling, and say, why did this happen? You, your child dies and you're sitting in my office across from me and we're talking to you. Why did my, God take my child? Why? And you're in tears. You know what I'm going to do? Let me pray for you. I'm not going to answer that question because I don't know. You know what I'm telling tell you? God is good. He loves your child more than you ever could. I don't know why that happened. He loves you. He'll help you get through this. But I, I, I don't know. All I know is that this is not the way it's supposed to be. God set up the way it was supposed to be, and we had a different scheme, and we made a mess of things. And now this is not the way it's supposed to be, and that's why you're in here right now. But that's not the end of the story. Hear that? It's not the end of the story because God isn't going to leave it a mess. God sent Jesus to clean up the mess. And Jesus came and lived perfectly in our place. And then Jesus went to the cross and paid for our sin, for the mess we made of what God set up. He paid for it. And Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And Jesus promised that one day he will return and set it all right. So that things are the way they're supposed to be. So that the wicked will no longer prosper, but will be punished. And the righteous in Christ will no longer suffer, but will rejoice with him forever. That's what we know. It's all we know. God created everything. We messed it all up. God is redeeming all things and will ultimately restore everything to the way it's supposed to be. It's all we really know. Let me read Psalm 73 because I want you to hear that the psalmist's And I want to conclude with this, and you can follow along if you want, Psalm 73. The psalmist actually, uh, Asaph actually deals with this question and this concern. And I just want you to hear this, and then I'll ask the guys to basically start singing right after I pray, after we read this. Here's what it says. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, that's His people, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their heart overflows, hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, lofty they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, "How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high?" Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let me pray, Father we ask, we ask that we would be a people who while we don't understand every detail of how you're working out all this story in our own lives, Father we understand the grand narrative, the grand story that you've created all things, that we've made a mess out of them, but you are redeeming them in Christ and will restore them all in him. Father, we, we pray that we can remember that, that we look to you in faith, that we trust in you. That when we're suffering, when we are under much duress, we don't run off into sin thinking somehow that will alleviate it. But we trust in you. Father, kill the pursuit of righteousness for the purpose of manipulating you that, that rages in so many of our hearts. Put it to death, that we might know that we don't deserve anything good from you, but you love us and desire to do good to us. In fact, you promised in the new covenant that you will never relent from being good to us. But let us trust in you, knowing that that is a gift given to us in Jesus. And may we know that the end, in the end, all things will be worked out. The wicked will perish. And those who are in Christ will rejoice in you forever. We're thankful for that. Pray that we would keep our minds, our hearts set on that. That we would be able to say with the psalms, Whom have I have in heaven besides you? you? You are all we have and all we desire. In Jesus' name, amen.